communication is the key. But like I'd like to add to that is that, but you need to take that key and put it in the door and open that door, you know. Yes. Yes. And walk yeah. through it and have an action after that communication. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Your partner for improving animal performance. Berg and Schmidt. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Poultry Podcast. My name is Jason Emmert, and today we're chatting with Elena George Olson, who is nearing the completion of her PhD program at the University of Wisconsin in the Department of Animal and Meat Science. Elena, your LinkedIn profile indicates you're looking into pre- and post-harvest applications and dietary strategies to decrease pathogen prevalence in poultry production and meat products. Those are certainly extremely important topics and address challenges that are unlikely to dis- disappear anytime soon. But we're so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Yeah. So oftentimes, as we get started, we like to hear about uh, everyone's academic journey, sort of how you got to where you are today. So, yeah, if you don't mind, let's get started with that. Well, um, honestly, it's a... Uh... It's not it's probably not as interesting as other people's stories, but I started um, I started my academic career in a pre-med as a bachelor's degree in medicine. And then I followed two masters with microbiology. And it was mostly all uh, as well clinical applications. So again, it was mostly for humans. But ultimately I just I wanted to do I was tired of, you know, the all of the microbiology associated with humans. It was just either, you know, we only have two ends where the microbes come to and out. So I started to be interested, looking into microbiology, not clinically associated, you know, and that's how I met Dr. Stephen Ricky. He um, works with the food safety department in University of Arkansas. And this is how I started my master's uh, thesis, analyzing the poultry associated feed uh, utilizing whole genome sequencing. And ultimately, it kind of, you know, I got interested in it in food safety. I'd never thought about microbiology in the food safety application. I was studying my master's in Kansas, Pittsburgh State University. And that's why over there, there isn't that much 
there are many degrees that are associated, uh, microbiologically speaking, with food safety or animal science in any way. It's a lot of people over there, whenever they take the microbiology courses and, you know, ecology courses, they're always thinking about human application and pre-medical universities. And that's the route that I was going to take. But then I decided, you know, I really saw the concern that the human world, so to speak, was facing, especially with poultry. You know, poultry is the number one protein in the world. And I'm originally from Russia. And so I was raised there during perestroika. And in the 1990s, we had those what they called Bush's legs. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So even when I was a child, I was like thinking, Where's the rest of the bird? You know, why is there only the legs? So whenever I was studying, started to study the poultry science or the microbiology associated with poultry production and animal production, that's when it kind of hit the whole circle for me, you know, and I decided that I need to be somewhere in the food safety and that poultry, it, it might originate in one country, but it will travel across the world, you know, and it can affect so many lives. And, you know, economically speaking, uh, Food safety speaking, there's just, you know, I got in a little bit, not obsessed, but passionate about the food safety and especially the poultry production. So that's how I ended up in animal science and especially poultry, because I do see a huge uh, impact of poultry meats that are associated internationally and just, you know, with uh, human consumption. So, and uh, then I worked as a research technician after I got my master's. I at first taught at the Missouri Southern State University for a semester as an adjunct professor teaching anatomy, human anatomy and physiology. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in parallel, I was working in the food safety department at the University of Arkansas for Dr. Ricky. And I kind of, you know, more, more and more so I got into the whole lab experience and enjoying working by yourself, thinking more than, you know, studying. Well, I mean, you study as well, but it is the research definitely makes you think and ponder on things and, you know, how to save the world, like all of these things. When I was a child, I always wanted to do that. I was raised in a family of doctors, so I wanted to follow in the steps of helping people and, you know, saving the world, like I said. And so... So, yes, and I I told Dr. Ricky, I'm going to be your PhD student. I'm not just here for work. So, and he's considered that. So, he had no choice but to <laughs> <laughs> include me into his PhD program. But I worked hard to show him that, you know, that I can. And I followed him here to UW-Madison uh, to pursue my PhD career in, um, you know, in food safety or animal science. And mostly I focus on pathogen contamination as I am interested in that and more of the cellular and molecular interactions that happen between the pathogen and uh, locally residing microbiota. So mostly uh, my research focuses on pre-harvest applications right now, although I've been in involved in many um, post-harvest applications like the shelf life studies and such. But my interest is in molecular interactions between uh, pathogens like Campylobacter, especially, and and local microbiota. But um, also, of course, you can't forget Salmonella. So I I do 
I have done some work on that as well. Such important work, because I, I think it's fair to say consumers are not growing more knowledgeable about food safety and how to handle products in the home. Um, I'm not sure that that knowledge is growing out in the food service industry either. <laughs> so the more we can do before the product gets to them, uh, I think right. everybody will exactly. be. I think consumers assume it is safe once they get it from the store. I don't know if you just saw the Netflix documentary that just came out, uh, Poisoned. And it was really good. It is all about the food safety. I recommend watching that. And I've met a few people that are on that documentary, actually. And when you watch it, you realize that people do think, you know, when they buy their chicken at the store, they think it's pathogen free. And it is definitely not the case. So... Yeah, it's interesting that they think that way because they are not pathogen free. I mean, you know, everywhere. not sterile organisms. Yes. yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, we have higher expectations for our food, I guess. But we do. Yeah. Well, you know, this is America, and we expect certain things here to be under regulation and control. So, as we should. That's right. Yeah. So. Oh sure. Yeah. It really sounds to me like you're, I, I don't know whether to call it next generation or next, next generation, um, looking at the, at the microbiota. And now, you know, there's studies going back many, many years, but we're progressing into trying to understand better these interactions among microorganisms and direct effects of what we might put in the feed, indirect effects that we might put in the feed, which I think is really fascinating. So, yeah, I'm just going to throw that out there and see what would you like to reflect on as far as that? Or are, are there um, emerging technologies you see that you find exciting or what is what is the greatest area of need? Yes, actually. Uh, perhaps? I've just thrown like three questions at you, so I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I'm the same way. I will answer them all. Um, well, I will try at least. But the feed is actually something that I am also very interested in. And I published a few papers on it and contamination of feed and just um, and that's what by dietary applications. I mean, you know, like we can put any supplements in the diet and, it, and such. So it's not that or nutritious wise uh, and we can control or not control, but maybe manipulate and alter the microbiome of the animal. And so some of the interesting things that lately have been coming across is using enzymes in the feed, you know, like, um, so proteases and, um, just recently I've been, I'm working, it's actually part of my dissertation on Campylobacter interactions with the local microbiota. And what I'm actually just looking at is that, Campylobacteria overall has a pref molecular preference for for the size of the nutrient, you know. So whenever we're eating the proteins, they're digested, obviously, you know, into smaller counterparts, they're peptides and amino acids. So whenever there's studies out there that research the pathogens and their consumption of proteins, like Campylobacter does not like glucose for its source of um, growth, it actually prefers amino acids. So whenever there are studies trying to figure out which amino acids it like, you know, they focus on these amino acids. But what my research actually showed when I utilized the three different uh, peptide structures, like the whole protein and then this peptides and then free-floating amino acids of the same casein, it uh, Campylobacter grew better utilizing the peptides. 
and which made, you know, it was unexpected for me because most of the literature talked about amino acid preference. And so, you know, now I'm going into it and looking into the uh, metabolomic output or metabolomic profiles associated with those treatments. I also saw that not just Campylobacter grew in that enzyme hydrolysate. So the peptide where there were more peptide structures available. Um, it also, there was a lot more vitamin B production associated with that system. And, and as a matter of fact, I guess I didn't mention it was in vitro sequel system that was inoculated with different peptides and the source of proteins and as well as Campylobacter. So there was other locally present microbiota in that system. And they, so, so yes, I mean, Campylobacter, uh, there was, there, so there's, I think Campylobacter because of the smaller genome, like Salmonella has a 5 million base pair genome compared to Campylobacter that only has a 1 million base pair genome. So you can see that that kind of pathogen is different from other pathogens, whereas um, it's more dependent on the metabolites that are in its environment, you know, so it needs to have those local community working and functioning well so it can survive and grow and colonize within that system, you know? And I call the Campylobacter a little homeless guy because, you know, because of the whole community needs to be working hard so it can survive and produce metabolites for its source of growth. And I found that very interesting that Campylobacter turned out to be more of like, um, um, what do you call a rumen microorganism, so to speak, I mean, it, it is also found in the rumen, but I study poultry and sequel systems, so it was unexpected to see its preference for peptide sources. And yeah, so and, and now I'm trying to find these cross-feeding interactions with the local microbiota. It's more of an exploratory study, study and I would like to go more into control studies after all of these explorations and discoveries, but, but I do would like to find the metabolites that is, you know, that help the Campylobacter feed uh, that are produced by the local microbiota based on the nutrient supply, such as proteins. So, and that's why, you know, application of proteases, I think, and uh, in the feed that help to digest that feed a little bit earlier in the gastro in the upper gastrointestinal tract where the host can consume that and the beneficial bacteria like bifidobacterium or lactobacillus can consume those amino acids or peptides that are associated in the upper gastrointestinal tract and produce a short chain fatty acids and ultimately and vitamin Bs, you know, and can affect the health of the host beneficially rather than those larger proteins and peptides making into sequel compartments and allowing the Campylobacter growth and colonization and prosperity there, you know? So, so I think that's where it's very interesting. It's not just these antimicrobials that we use, but it's also these strategies that are what I like to call nutritional strategies that on the size of feed even. Is, is it right to think of some of the potential strategies as almost an indirect, where if you're affecting microbiota that produce something that is needed by Campylobacter, then you're affecting it, but it's, a, it's more of an indirect effect? Exactly. That's exactly what I think. Yes. It's, uh, yes. Uh, the cross-feeding effect, I actually call it the uh, non-Campylobacter bacterial targets. Uh, 
Now, that makes me wonder if uh, potentially we can affect those changes, we can impact Campylobacter indirectly. Would we then need to consider shifting the diet in such a way as now we're promoting the newer microbiota environment? I'm not sure if that makes sense, but sometimes I think, you know, we have our one feeding strategy, but if we're affecting the changes we want, that maybe that needs to shift as we go along. Right. And uh, so protein consumption in poultry is essential, as you might understand. You know, we want them to grow fast and big. So their diets are loaded with proteins and shifting those diets. Exactly. That's it would be interesting to see which way the microbiome will shift. But there are some competitors like lactobacillus, which is a good bacteria in this in the local community and it has a competition that we've seen with campylobacter so for this those nutrients so understanding those interactions might actually help to where we see what molecular size does lactobacillus like and making sure we're feeding that bacteria that can overcompete campylobacter's presence and seeing maybe it hopefully doesn't produce some waste metabolites that Campylobacter can feed off. What do you see as maybe the uh, the biggest hurdles in uh, in our knowledge base? What is maybe the most pressing issue that you think would help us move forward in this in this area of addressing pathogens? It's a great question. Yeah, and I'm just curious because I have so little background in this area. It's fascinating, but if my mind spins with, oh, I wonder what's what's the most pressing thing, or if you could wave a magic wand and create a, a needed technology or a needed product. Well, just, yeah, you know, pathogen just, it's, I think it's also like, it's the phenotype, you know, it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to just because the genome, the, like, but I always like to compare it to humans, right. As I was used to study humans more as well. Um, you know, we all have the same genes, but what makes you all of a sudden, you know, uh, angry, at, you know, is your environment. So, you know, so you show a different phenotype within a different environment. So just because we're talking about salmonella, you know, or campylobacter, maybe we can keep it uh, not pathogenic. I don't know if that's actually even possible. I mean, I know salmonella, potentially it might be if we keep the virulence of the bacteria down and where the bird can just extract it out of its system. Um, and that's where I actually focus on the last step of the processing as feed withdrawal, because I understand that it's hard to, there is so many cerebrals of salmonella, you know, Campylobacter is just practically everywhere um, in, in the birdhouses. And so that last step of the feed withdrawal is actually a standard to decrease fecal contamination and fecal shedding before the transportation. But um, so, and it's only eight to 12 hours. So I feel like any strategies applicable there, and I'm not saying like, let's forget about other strategies before that step. Of course, we need a multi-hurdle approach all the way, you know, but at that last step, I think it would be very critical to apply some kind of uh, strong um technological and we're not technological nutritional well i guess it's a feed withdrawal so what i am looking for is like where you can put it in the drinking water so that's why i was looking at the phage applicability because phages can survive in water just fine you know there's also addition of glucose but you know those are those don't seem to be uh, too effective to decrease salmonella contamination um so 
so yeah, I think those figuring out the time and place for each intervention is very important. Very important. And they all, they all have to work together. Absolutely. You know, it's, or they just got to do thinking. their job at their particular step, you know, and then get into the next step. There can be another approach to deal with it. But like you said, by the time it gets to the consumer, let's hope that it's the most minimum amount, you know, of pathogens that are associated with production. I was just thinking I, on my on my drive home today, I could do a great job driving almost all the way, but if I jump out of the car before I park it, it's not going to end well. You know, you can you can do everything right all through production, but you you have to follow through with that um, with that last part and even what goes on in a processing plant. Exactly, exactly, um, and that's what we actually see too. You know that all of these pre-harvest applications, you know, they work, they work great, but something can happen in the processing plant, you know, and and there goes another Cerevar showing up and vaccines that are for Salmonella, they're Cerevar specific. So they might not account for that another Cerevar that is showing up within the processing plant. We've had some interesting uh, conversations and guests on the on the podcast talking about coccidiosis and the challenges with that. And has your work um, overlapped with that at all? Or I know we've talked quite a bit about Campylobacter. But. Yes. No, I actually have not done any work with coccidiosis at all. I, I recently, uh, we're writing a grant on Innovo vaccination against Salmonella, but it is using that uh, same, hopefully not technology, but I guess technology is the, the vaccine for the coccidiosis. That's as far as my knowledge goes on that. Oh no, that's okay. Because it's, it's really, it's good to have people working more specifically um, because, you know, eventually we have to fit all the pieces together. Uh, but if we don't know what the pieces are, that's, <laughs> that's going to be very difficult. Indeed. And so, I mean, uh, you know, we all cannot work on all of the pieces to well, right. oh, individually sure. yeah. working on these and all of us, you know, individually focusing on different things, you know, and, and podcasts like this, this is, I actually listen to your podcast, uh, follow you on LinkedIn. And uh, it's very interesting. Yes, I hear things that, you know, I do not study. And it's good to know what other people are doing in the poultry production. Because, you know, poultry is a very, we, we alter that product a lot for our consumption, you know, in the sense of like, the more, the better. And so it needs a lot of attention as far as Definitely. And, and a lot of, uh, a lot of potential points at which things, things can happen, things can go wrong before and after processing. Exactly. So, yeah. There, there's always really humans working. So, you know, there's that's right. a lot that's of right. error may yeah. be introduced. Yeah, that's right. And even when it's machines, those machines need to be clean. Oh, exactly. Uh, exactly. And, and even I marvel at, at how well, uh, we're able to do that because that's not a simple, not a simple process. Yes, I actually yeah. just uh, came from Italy from a conference and was talking to a lady from Norway, where she was talking about Campylobacter in the poultry houses, and she was saying that even changing the way the air flows and the, through the house is critical to how much Campylobacter or Salmonella can be spread. You know, so it's the little things. And she said that people that work there, if they don't take their shoes off before they come in or like change their shoes, she's like, that can be a case for Campylobacter or pathogen spread 
throughout the vlog. You know, so it's the smallest little thing. So it's no matter, we can do all of these applications and spend a lot of money on research. And then if one person doesn't take their shoes off. Oh boy. Yeah. It's so important that we all talk to one another and understand one another from the very production aspects, ventilation, management, feeding. I mean, it, it all fits together, but it's, boy, it's complex. And especially when I start thinking about the gut. Oh, yeah how complex it is. It's just amazing. It really is. The gut is my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> and as it was, I talked to, um, to new, uh, new students, especially in grad school, students who are interested in nutrition or poultry nutrition. Um, my advice is always do what I did not do. Um, learn as much as you can about the gut. Uh, learn your microbiology because I, I think we can't separate them anymore. They're so closely interwoven. Uh, and those that are doing that are going to have plentiful opportunities, I think. Exactly. I think that's what now with all the recent knowledge and research that is coming out there about the gastrointestinal tract and its effects on the immune system and, you know, even the brain function, not that the poultry needs that too much, but maybe they do, you know, you know, their behavior and stuff. So it's important. We need them to eat, to drink, to behave as they need to behave within the community. So, so yeah, all of these metabolites affect our well-being overall. And as uh, you know, every day that passes by, consumers are more interested in how we do things. Uh, people are more interested in environmental impacts. You mentioned behavior, um, animal welfare. All of those things are so important now. And uh, I have to believe, you know, that the bird's environment, the, the welfare uh, standards, the things that we're doing um, to help with welfare, all of this is going to impact how the bird responds to what we're feeding them and, and certainly uh, can therefore impact the microbiota. So, Absolutely. As yeah. I discussed the feed withdrawal, you know, we just did some preliminary uh, studies on it. And I just wanted to compare without challenging the birds with any pathogens, just to compare their uh, gastrointestinal tract and microbiome that is associated with the treatment. So one group was left fed and the other group was uh, feed withdrawn. And interestingly enough, so coming in the morning, you know, to prepare for the slaughter, I noticed that the birds that were taking the feed all faced the, the cage with the birds that had feed there still. So you could tell that they were already stressed, that they it was affecting them, and they were, you know, mentally cognitive enough to see that the other ones were still eating. And it was very interesting to see that, you know, I, I don't know what we expect if we think that the birds are intellectual in any way, but there was a behavioral change right away that I noticed, you know, then we started our necropsy and what we saw is that their gastrointestinal tract was full of litter and feathers because, you know, birds from the day of hatch, they eat from their environment. So they don't stop doing that when you take the feed away. And so even though that standard is created to decrease the fecal contamination, it's actually, it decreases the fecal shedding but i don't know about the contamination part because they're still consuming you know their litter and the litter is full of feces on there so they're recontaminating themselves actually with salmonella at some point and then it makes you wonder how how long does it take how long would it take anything that they are taking in 
any microorganisms are taking in, how long would it take those to proliferate to become a problem? Well, studies, there are studies that show that uh, salmonella contamination within the bird increases from 5 to 30% during feed withdrawal and then transportation time. So I think that's a big number, you know. It is. It yes. is. And, Absolutely. And it's because, yeah. you know, the birds, they, whenever they stop eating, the or at least they stop eating the feed, the crop retention time increases. So, so the alkalinity of the crop actually goes up due to the decrease of lactobacillus associated with the crop, and which can actually promote pathogen colonization like salmonella. And then it can affect the lower gastrointestinal tract. So then does, does it become a, a question of what does the least, I don't want to say harm, that's not really the right word, but what is, what is the least potentially hazardous to leave them on some kind of feed or to do that feed withdrawal? And it may depend on the environment and lots of other factors. Well, it's definitely, it's been a standard since I think 1990s to do the feed withdrawal. And it's been working <laughs> so far in the sense of, you know, how much feces they shed and how much of it goes into environment during transportation time. But yes, if one bird is contaminated, it can quickly spread throughout the flock just because the other birds get more susceptible uh, with the stress being increased and, you know, and just the change in the environment and the proximity of each other during transport and uh, factors like that. But I think just... Uh, it's that's why I think feed withdrawal step isn't it's anywhere from eight to 12 hours is a very critical point for uh, inter- pathogen intervention during that time. And I actually just doing some work on phage application during during uh, feed withdrawal, just because we take the feed away and you can introduce phages in the water. Uh, phages activity, actually, we did some preliminary studies on that. They are able to survive in water uh, preserving their activity up to 48 hours. So I think it would be interesting, you know, just another approach on top of everything else. Um, I think it would be beneficial for that. So they can, because the water is still there and putting those phages in the water and maybe having a cocktail of phages that have different latent stages, you know, so therefore they're, because, uh, you know, through their lytic cycles, they're going to be released from the bacteria, so to speak, in a, uh, a different time point. So they're continuously would be affecting the different uh, salmonella cerevars, especially. I think that's going to be important. So where the phages actually have different targets, like the outer membrane proteins and stuff. It makes me think uh, how important it is to help consumers understand. And we have to understand this too, that, you know, we're, we're not going to find perfect solutions or perfect situations. We have to find the best that we can. And so we're never going to eliminate all risk or all pathogens. It's very, very difficult, but we do the best we can. We may recognize feed withdrawal may have some, you know, things that we wish could be better, but it's better than the alternative. Right, exactly. Uh, And it's also, you know, like I said, it can be another time point for another type of intervention. So, yeah. The work never ends. <laughs> it never ends. That's right. I think we've had entire careers built on initial unintended consequences or unexpected things that we then have to have to address. But that's what makes it interesting. Exactly. That's what keeps us working. And that's why that's we right. got jobs. That's huh? right. 
Oh, sure. Well, and actually that's, I did mean to ask you what, um, so what are you hoping comes next? What are you looking for in the next point or next part of your career? I'm, I'm going to stay for a postdoctoral position here because we have a lot of, uh, a lot, a few projects that I am uh, very interested in. And um, so I definitely want to participate in that. And and after that, I am still thinking it's either I'm also doing a PhD minor in business. So I'm also very interested in entrepreneurship aspect of uh, industry and, you know, the microbiome with all the supplements and stuff like that. There's a lot of opportunities um, that are there. And I may, I consider working for a smaller company just because there's a lot more things you can be a part of than in a bigger corporation. So I don't know, but I love research and I like to stay curious. So, so I haven't decided on that part yet because academia is very intriguing to me as well. Sure, sure. And there are many times when, when those things can go hand in hand, you know, in, involved in some entrepreneurial things. And I, I don't know that there's a better place to do that than University of Wisconsin. They've got I agree. Awesome reputation going back many decades of supporting that. I agree. Their business yeah. department yeah. is amazing. I, yeah. yeah. A lot of good people yeah. there. Yeah. How did, uh, how did you discover that um, PhD minor program? Was that something you sought out or did you happen to hear about I it? Just, um, I've been interested in entrepreneurship before. Well, still am. I used to own actually a bar in Missouri. Oh, huh? Yeah. A Russian vodka bar. <laughs> so uh, I enjoyed having uh, my own business. And uh, so from that point, I kind of after following with my academic career, I still that never went away, you know, being responsible for something yourself and just having this idea and seeing it through. And it's just. Yeah, something of that. It's just another passion of mine, I guess. Well, I applaud you for for pursuing that. Um, It's so easy in graduate school, especially in a PhD program, to get entirely tunnel focused on one thing. But boy, adding something like an entrepreneurship program just really expands the way you see things and the possibilities and and how you understand uh, what your contribution might be down the road. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say to suggest to other people is like, don't limit yourself. You know, you never know what's going to come in handy. That's right. That's right. And seemingly unrelated things. I mean, owning a bar that might feel seemingly unrelated to uh, what you're studying now. But that experience might lead you into an openness to having other kinds of entrepreneurial experiences. So it's all worthwhile. Exactly. It, well, it really and is. with owning a bar, it taught me that, you know, you you have to do the smallest things to see the big picture. You know, you sh- you can't be afraid of cleaning the toilets and and representing yourself in front of the news or the customers. You know. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the poultry industry, and I'm sure there are many other industries like this, but generally the people I've met that work with poultry are the ones who are willing, whether it's their job at the time or not, but are willing to do what we think of as the dirty work. Um, 
and that's yeah, it's important because that's how you understand how things work at the most I basic agree. levels. I agree. That is, that has been another huge thing for me as well. When I started the career in poultry production, I was mostly in the lab, and then whenever we had to, I had to design a protocol to perform a study, you know, of salmonella attachment to poultry skin, and just just other different things, you know, during processing and I've never been in the processing plant. So I was like, well, can I see what it's like? And that was essential, you know, to see where people come in, where the birds come in, where the technology comes in. It plays a huge role in how you design your experimental study and just how you go about things in the whole understanding of the environment. And I, I agree with you that Poultry people, I haven't met a bad individual yet. They're not afraid to get their hands dirty, which is a good thing. It's a neat community. There's a lot of poultry in the world, but the number of people who work with poultry is much smaller. Yes, indeed. And uh, it's a a tight-knit community and a great community to be a part of. It really is. I agree with that. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, sustainable poultry solutions. From essential vitamins like HYD to next generation products like Hyphorius for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH to learn more about our newest solutions. I think our, our time is, is drawing a little bit short. So we have these questions that we like to ask all of our guests. And the first one of those is, what is your favorite poultry related book or resource? So, um, since um, I am still a student, I don't get to read too many books yet as I wish I could, but I do read a lot of research. And as I've spoken to you earlier, I am interested in the gut and the whole immune interaction and other microbial interactions. So I do like to follow the Michael Colgut, uh actually research. Uh, yes, I'm actually want to focus on writing a review on poultry tolerance and he's done a lot of work in that and of course i would remiss if i don't do a shout out to my pi dr stephen ricky he's got a lot of poultry publications there and i definitely read a lot of his research just so we stay on the same page of understanding of where are we heading um, with our you know academic research so a great um great knowledge base but also just easy to talk to. Yes. Um, just, you know, I've had conversations with him where he's helped me understand. I mean, he's not going to talk to anyone who knows less about what he does than I do. 
So if he can help me understand, that's that's a good. And actually, like sure. I haven't met him in person, but I've seen him. I think it was on your podcast, as a matter of fact, and somewhere else as well on uh, some presentation. And the way he presents was very easy to understand, like you said. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited that you that you mentioned some people as resources because we forget that it should be so obvious. I mean, we we network and we build these relationships with experts, with people who have lots of experience and we forget they're, they're a great resource and they really are. Absolutely. Yes. There are people behind those publications. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Easy to forget, but so true. So true. Well, great. Well, the follow-up question is then is, uh, do you have a favorite non-poultry related book or resource or, you know, something you like to listen to or watch or, Anything along those lines? Yes. So as a matter of fact, I've been trying to finish this book. Uh, it's called The Eighth, Eighth Day of Creation. Have you heard of it? No? I've heard of it, but I haven't seen so it. So it's just yeah. about the whole, uh, it's about, it's a scientific book, but it's about the history and the politics behind the uh, DNA and just how, you know, how research comes about. And it starts from like, 1920s or something like that and you know and just how researchers interact among each other and the politics behind it and the whole dna helix you know controversy um rosalind franklin and how you know they stole her research those (laughs) watson and crick so it starts with that and just behind stories about who they are and their interactions in the lab and then it follows through it's a it's a Big book, but it's very interesting to read. And the other one is The Gene, which actually follows them, again, the same kind of idea, but it starts and it describes World War II. And well, it starts before World War II in 1920s and starts with America, actually. And then they're talking about eugenics and Hitler and Stalin. And there are different ways of trying to make the genes better before actually the research came about, about DNA recombination and understanding and all of that. So they were talking about how science and politics are driven together, you know, and I've never like read uh, before about the World War II, you know, being Russian, I studied a lot of history about it, but never from that angle, from the scientific angle. So that was very interesting. I highly suggest it. It's written by some Indian guy. It's a very long last name. Oh, I think people, yeah, people could Google and find it for sure. Yeah. Interesting. And that's sometimes not often enough, but sometimes we realize, you know, it's important to go back into the history of, of whatever we're studying, you know, just because a paper is 30 years old doesn't mean that it doesn't have value and it's easy to get focused just on the very recent. Um, but even broader than that, the history of the discipline, the history of the science, and like you said, the history and the politics together. It's just fascinating. It really is. Yes. It brings it all together and the importance of science and progression of science and how it affects, you know, the whole world and politically and, you know, can result in wars. Absolutely. Yeah, it sure can. And that's, those are great suggestions. Appreciate that. The third question, the last question for you is, um, just to see if you could give some advice. If you were talking to um, to people just getting started, to people who might have an interest in getting into the poultry world, whether it's research or industry or, or what have you, what would your advice be? Well, I think like I said earlier, I definitely suggest, like you said, do learn everything 
there is learn more skills, the better. Always add a skill. The next year, add something else. You know, never, don't stop. Never think that you know something uh, because I guarantee you, you do not. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, I think learning an extra skill uh, is always good. I give myself a year until I, you know, I'm like, okay, I need to learn something else. Like there's some software, some other technology out there, something else that, you know, you need to continue learning and collaborate. That's essential. I know people like to network and talk to each other. I think that is important, but I think collaboration and doing work together is even more important. Presenting your work to someone outside of your field, outside of your lab, outside of your comfort zone, you know, and comfort place is necessary um, because it allows you to, you know, to learn how to communicate what you know. That's been a valid criticism of many of us over the years that we we just don't communicate as well as we should, or always with the with the populations that we should, um, and that's a part of how I'm afraid we've gotten into this situation with consumers just not knowing much about what we do and the importance of different things it has a real impact on us. Yes, I think science. You know, the, if we maybe t- start talking a little bit simpler <laughs> is that a word you know more simplistic and trying to understand uh, communicate to regular people more often about how important is what we do you know just like you said just communicate with them communication is the key but like i'd like to add to that is that but you need to take that key and put it in the door and open that door you know so, yes. yes and walk yeah. through it and have an action after that communication so and that action can only be facilitated if the other person understands what we're talking about. Absolutely. Yep. That's the key. I always feel like if I can't explain something in a simple way, then I question whether or not I truly understand it. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. This has been wonderful. I've learned a lot. And uh, I, I really appreciate, again, your willingness to, to be with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me here. This is amazing. I'm glad we could have, yeah, I'm glad we met and could talk about poultry. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you to everyone listening out there. We hope you have a great rest of the day and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.